All right, if you'll take your Bible and open to Luke chapter 8, I'm excited to be able to spend some time studying uh, the Bible with you. We actually uh, began our Cornerstone Bible Institute uh, this past Wednesday. It was really uh, a great time. You're welcome to come this next week, Wednesday night. We're going to be looking at an introduction to the Old Testament. Uh, But this past week, we talked about the fact that God speaks through his word. And so something amazing is happening here. It seems very ordinary when you open up the Bible and you look down and you see those words. It looks like a human book, but it's more than just another human book. It is a book in which God himself meets with us and speaks to us. And so we are working our way through the Gospel of Luke, and we are in uh, Luke chapter 8, and we're going to look at uh, verses 1 through 3 together today and talk mostly about Jesus and women. So that is the, the subject, the important role of women in the life and ministry of Jesus, which is important even if you're not a woman for a lot of reasons. Uh, but one is just that uh, this is something that people get upset at Christians a lot about. Maybe not what Jesus thought about women specifically, but the way Christians have thought about women over the years, the the way the Bible talks about women. This is a controversial subject. Uh, Even now, uh, saying that there is such a thing as men and women could be controversial, I guess, but the Bible says there are men and women. They are different, and people have gotten very upset about the way the Bible talks about those differences and how those differences are supposed to work out, specifically in our relationships at home and in the church. If you want to talk about a subject where you're pretty sure to make uh, someone upset, talk about the differences between men and women and their roles in the Bible. And uh, you know, sometimes people have gotten upset for good reasons, actually. We should admit that at, at the front. Sometimes people have gotten upset because Christians are not explaining what the Bible teaches about men and women very well, honestly. You hear what some people think the Bible says about men and women and their roles, and you look at the way the church has treated women, and you think that is a reason to be upset, actually. You should be upset. It's a distortion of the Bible. It's not scripture, and distorting scripture hurts people and is wrong. But that's not the only reason people get upset Obviously, sometimes people get upset not because you are saying something wrong, but because they don't like God telling them anything at all. For God to have authority is a problem for people, and it's been a problem for people since the Garden of Eden. We haven't wanted God to be able to tell us what's good and what's evil, to define us. We've wanted to make that decision for ourselves for a long time. And, of course, as Christians, we gave that up when we came to to Jesus. This is part of what makes us different. We no longer think we're in charge of our lives. And that is clear from even one of the very first things we say about Jesus when we become a Christian. We say, Jesus is Lord, which means that he owns us, first of all, because he's our creator, but also because he's our savior. He died for us. We're not our own. We belong to him. And ultimately, Jesus is the one who gets to set the standards for what we think and what we do. And there are a lot of times when the standards he sets for us are going to be different than the ones we find in the world around us. And that's part of what makes us controversial as Christians. We can't really help it. We're going to make people upset sometimes because we aren't the ones setting the agenda for our lives and our culture isn't either. And so there are going to be times when we have to think and act differently than people from our same culture. And if you want proof of that, you can just start with the life of Jesus himself because he doesn't only tell us to be different than our culture, he is different than his culture. And as we look at the Gospel of Luke, one of the ways that Jesus was very different than his culture was in the way he related to women. One of the things that set Jesus apart from the Jewish culture, from the Hellenistic culture, that means Greek culture, and even from the Roman culture, 
was his perspective on women. He treated women differently than the people around him. It's a, a little ironic, actually, when people get upset about the way uh, Christians treat women. When people get upset about the way Christians treat women, you should acknowledge some of the ways that Christians have messed up in the past, for sure, but you should also push back because people have all these assumptions about how women should be treated, but they don't always think about where those assumptions came from. And so you should ask them, why do you think you so strongly believe women should be treated this way, respected, as equals, with rights? Because if you look at history, it's not a given. Not everyone has assumed women should be treated the way most Americans would say they think women should be treated. So uh, take Jewish culture in Jesus' day, and this is not Old Testament culture, it's not biblical culture, it's the Jewish culture in Jesus' day, and it's always a little hard to generalize when you look at history, but there was a pattern you can identify, and let's just say they didn't normally really respect women in the first century. Women were not allowed to testify in a Jewish court of law. Josephus, who was a Jewish historian at the time, said that even the witness of multiple women was not acceptable because of the levity and boldness of their sex. There was a religious teacher who taught his followers to uh, pray every day something like, blessed art thou, O God, who has not made me a woman. Another said, uh, let the teachings of the law be burned, but let them not be handed over to a woman. It was assumed a woman's place was pretty much exclusively in the home. The terminology for a prostitute was literally one who goes abroad. The woman of the first century, this is a quote, did not even do her own shopping except possibly to go out accompanied by a slave to buy material which she would use to construct her own clothing at home. It wasn't totally like that in the country, but it was more like that in the city in Jerusalem. And that's uh, Jewish culture, but believe it or not, Hellenistic culture was, uh, was worse. Greek culture had a super low view of women. I quote, in ancient Greece, a respectable woman was not allowed to leave the house unless she was accompanied by a trustworthy male escort. A wife was not permitted to eat or interact with male guests in her husband's home. She had to retire to her woman's quarters. Men kept their wives under lock and key, and women had the social status of a slave. Girls were not allowed to go to school, and when they grew up, they were not allowed to speak in public. They served two purposes, fundamentally, in the man's mind, to produce sons and to enable the man to have pleasure. So we talk a lot about sexual abuse today, and we should, but there wasn't even a concept of sexual abuse in the ancient world, really. Especially if we talk about Roman culture, which was a lot like Greek culture, maybe with a little more freedom for rich women, definitely not for poor women. But one historian has said, the complete violent exploitation of women without any claim to civic protection was simply, as a problem in its own right, invisible. In other words, they didn't see that as a problem, sexual abuse. So we think of being created equal nowadays, that's what we say at least, it seems like self-evident to us. And so if someone said a man's life is worth more than a woman's, we would think, what in the world is he talking about? And yet you know, if someone said that to the old philosophers, like the ones we study in school, like Plato and Socrates, and all these people who were supposed to be the paragon of wisdom in the ancient world, Someone said that people were created equal, men and women were equal, they would be like, what are you talking about? Where in the world did you get that idea from? Even the, the word uh, virtue in Latin is connected to the word for man. Virtue is manliness. This was a man-centered world. It's funny, we talk about rights, human rights. What about my rights and women's rights? as if it is so obvious that people have rights, but it definitely wasn't obvious in the ancient world. And you know, the truth is, if all we have is science, it's not very obvious nowadays either. Somebody has said, science tells us nothing about our equal status in relation to one another. If anything, it shows us how unequal we are. We don't get this idea from science. You open up a human, you don't find rights in there. 
And we don't get this idea from ancient cultures either, but we do get this idea from somewhere. We didn't come up with it on our own. And it wasn't from looking at humans or from looking at the way nature works for sure. We got this idea from Jesus. It is Jesus, as someone said, from whom all these beliefs have flowed. These were not self-evident truths at all in the first century. And they haven't been self-evident truths in most cultures most of the time that haven't been in any way kind of attempting to follow Jesus's teaching. I don't know if you've ever traveled to a country that hasn't been deeply impacted by Christianity, like at the fundamental worldview level at some point, but it is often brutal what happens to women. And maybe not just what happens, but the way it's sometimes treated as so normal. So I know people believe very strongly nowadays in equality and rights, and that's why they say they're upset with some of what they think Christians teach about men and women and roles and all that, but I'm not sure that they realize that their belief in equality and rights is a belief. <laughs> and for them, it's a leap of faith, really, because it's not grounded in anything, whereas Christians, it actually is. One of the reasons we treat women differently as Christians, or at least we should, is because Jesus treated women very differently than the people around him. And I could prove that to you in a number of different ways. First off, we could look at the passage right before this one. So we're in Luke 8, 1 through 3 today, but we could go back to uh, Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50, which you remember was that story of the sinful woman who was forgiven. And Jesus, if you were here last week, you know, was in the home of this respected uh, middle-class businessman who devoted most of his life to studying God's word, who had uh, invited Jesus over to ask him questions and get to know him when this woman, who uh, everyone knew was a sinner and actually a, a prostitute, comes in and starts making a scene where she is like weeping and wailing and kissing Jesus's feet. And yet, unlike everyone else, Jesus is not really at all embarrassed by how she acts, even though he knows who she is and how uncomfortable she's making everyone. He doesn't ask her to stop or ask her to leave. In fact, he does the opposite. Jesus actually uses her as an example for the Pharisee, which of course is shocking because the Pharisees thought of themselves as the ones who were the examples, the ones who were supposed to teach others. And yet Jesus is looking at this sinful woman and saying in front of everyone, you need to learn from her. God is not evaluating people on the basis of their status or power or gender. What he wants is humble faith, which is big. And you know, if we step back and look at the way Luke is using that story, it gets a, even a little bigger because you remember verse 35, Luke chapter 7, verse 35, Jesus says, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. And that's the verse that comes before this whole story. There were a lot of people who were uh, foolish and rejecting Jesus, and yet Jesus is saying there were also some who were wise and declared God's way of salvation right, and then Luke wants to give an example of one of wisdom's children, and so he talks about this sinful woman who was forgiven. She was one of wisdom's children, which is really awesome when you think big picture, because imagine, to understand what's happening here, Imagine a religion that wants to give an explanation of what it's about. So people are interested in this religion, and they're like, what is this religion about? And so they write a document in which they bring forth some of their wisest people as examples of what this religion teaches and how it's supposed to be lived out. And one of the first examples they bring up is this woman who used to be a prostitute. Because the gospel, you have to understand, just works different. That's what's happening here. And so it's not the great, the powerful, but the weaks, the weak, the ones who know their need, who understand what God is doing. The ones the world thinks are foolish are the ones who declare this way of salvation right, like this woman. She's an example to the Pharisee, and not just to the Pharisee, to us and everyone forever. And I think that gives an idea that the way Jesus thinks about women is gonna be radically 
different. And so honestly does what we find next in Luke 8, verses 1 through 3, which is our text that we're looking at today. And while it's not quite as dramatic as the story that goes before it, in terms of Jesus' attitude toward women, it probably is just as important. Luke writes, look at it, soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the 12 were with him and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their own means, which is what you might call a summary statement in Luke, and Acts, actually. Luke's got these little short sections that don't really describe a specific event as much as they give us some background information. And we might be tempted to like read through this very quickly, but passages like this are actually important because as Luke is sharing all these different stories about Jesus and the church, he knows that he needs to pause and help us slow down and reflect every once in a while. And he does that by giving us these little snapshots, which are almost like how a preacher might be up there talking and talking and talking and realize he needs to kind of draw everybody back in. And so he might suddenly slow down and say, wait, here's my point, or maybe this is what I want you to see, or even just summarize some of the main things that he's been saying. And while these ministry reports seem kind of simple at first, like Jesus did this or Jesus did that, Luke's actually highlighting some of what he thought were things that were especially significant about Jesus and giving us a a need-to-know picture of an important characteristic of Jesus's ministry. And so, for example, here he talks in verse 1 first about the scope of Jesus's ministry. He says, soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages. And then second, about the content of Jesus's ministry. He says he was proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And then finally, he tells us about some of the participants of Jesus's ministry, which is what he focuses on at the end of verse 1 and the beginning of verse 2. He writes, and the 12 were with him and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. And the way I read that makes it sound a little bit like an add-on. The 12 were with him and also some women. But it's not an add-on. There are two groups here, the 12 and women. And clearly... These two groups are important, especially important to Luke. He wants us to think about them because there were a lot of people around Jesus at the time, and yet Luke is singling out these two groups, the 12, the apostles, who are set apart as leaders in the early church, and the women. And probably because he's already told us about the apostles, he actually spends most of his time here on the the women, which is where things start getting a little radical. (laughs) Because as you're reading through a summary statement like this, obviously you're thinking, why exactly did Luke put this here? And while I think he wanted us to know where Jesus preached and what Jesus preached, he's already told us those things before. Those are repeats. He's already told us that Jesus was preaching the kingdom of God. And we've already seen that Jesus is going from village to village and city to city doing that. And he's already even introduced us to the 12, if you look back at chapter 6. But you know who he hasn't told us about? He hasn't told us about these women whom Jesus healed, who ended up becoming such a vital part of his ministry. That's kind of what stands out here in bold print. The focus of this passage is on these women as participants in Jesus' ministry. And it's describing a prolonged situation, too. In other words, Luke's saying that it wasn't just the 12 who were traveling with Jesus. There were also some women who had been recipients of Jesus's healing ministry who then became participants in Jesus's ministry. They were with him, Luke tells us, as he was traveling around preaching, providing for Jesus and for the apostles out of their own means. And you notice Luke mentions a few. He names them, which is kind of unusual in the Gospels, actually. I don't know if you've thought about that, but there's a lot of people that are not named in the Gospels. Even if you go to Luke 10, just a couple chapters later, it tells us about Jesus sending out 72 of his disciples, and yet he doesn't tell us the names of any of them. 
And there are some pretty significant miracles Jesus does where you don't get the name of who he did it to, like that widow's son he raised. What's his name? It just says young man. And that's pretty typical. Even at the end of Luke, Luke, uh, Jesus is walking to Emmaus with two disciples, and this is like a big moment in the gospel. And these two disciples are pretty important. They're seeing the resurrected Jesus, and yet Luke only names one of them, which means that the names we do read are not random. They're there for a reason. And I think these women are named here because they were an important part of Jesus's ministry while he was on earth and probably after as well. In other words, I don't think these women were obscure figures in the early church. They were probably pretty famous. And so Luke tells us about some of them. Who were these participants in Jesus's ministry? First, he tells us there was Mary called Magdalene from whom seven demons had gone out. And she might be the most important uh, because she's one of the very few people that's named in every single gospel. Some people say Peter, James, John, and then Mary Magdalene is next. And I don't know if that's true, but her name comes first here and in every other list. And that might mean that she sort of stands at the head like Peter. Even now, she's pretty famous, Mary Magdalene. Though a lot of what people say about her isn't actually true. Like, for example, her surname wasn't, or her last name wasn't Magdalene. Uh, it's just that her first name was so common. It was even the name of Jesus' own mother. In fact, Mary was the most popular Jewish girl's name in Jesus's day, but it was literally Miriam, not Mary, Miriam. So I don't know how it got changed to Mary in English, but we do that kind of thing. But the names Miriam and Salome uh, make up about 50% of all Jewish women in the first century. And so obviously they had to distinguish Marys from the other Marys in the New Testament. And so here Luke adds Magdalene, Mary Magdalene, because apparently she came from a small fishing village named Magdala. And people have a lot of opinions about Mary, like some people think she was the sinful woman Luke told us about in Luke 7, but there's no indication anywhere that Mary was a prostitute or anything like that before she became a disciple of Jesus. In fact, if we look at the text, we see her problem was different. She was a woman Jesus delivered from demonic bondage. Specifically, Luke says she was a woman from whom seven demons had gone out, which is obviously hard to imagine, seven demons. But it must have been awful, as demons invaded people for the purpose of doing them damage, physical damage. As we look at demon-possessed people in the Bible, it's always portrayed as more of an affliction than it is a sin. And we don't really know a lot about how demons work, except that a person being possessed looks more like being tortured than it does being tempted. And while the Bible doesn't tell us how long Mary had been demon-possessed or even when she met Jesus, someone must have brought her to him one of the times Jesus had gone out preaching when he rescued her, and she devoted herself to him and became one of his disciples, which I think is amazing. Because imagine knowing someone who had been possessed and the way their life must have been. You would always be tempted to look on her with suspicion. But for Jesus, her past didn't define her, which is obviously not how most people work, even people who say they're nice people, you know, maybe mostly people who say they're nice people, can be so hard on someone who has a bad past. Actually, even Mary Magdalene, all these years later, even though in most ways she was a victim tortured by these demons, people still think of her as being a prostitute. Imagine potentially being slandered as a prostitute for thousands of years. They assume sexual immorality without actually having any real reason, which I'm sure is how people worked back then as well. And yet when Jesus saves a person, he forgives them completely and he makes them a new person. And so he is happy to accept her as one of his followers and actually uses her. She goes on to play a key role in the gospel story in that she is the first witness to the resurrection, and such an important one that she's the only woman who is named as a witness in all four Gospels. In other words, she is the one that each Gospel mentions. And then there's Joanna, the wife of Chusa, next. Mary's the first participant Luke describes. And if you look down at verse 3, then there's Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, who's a little less well-known, I think. But Joanna is a Jewish name. It's related to John. And so some people think she might have been named for her father. It wasn't as popular a, 
a name in that day. Her name wasn't as common as Mary's. And so Luke doesn't really actually need to add anything to set her apart. And yet he does. He tells us about her husband, Chusa. And clearly Luke wants us to know about him as well because he doesn't name the names of any of the other husbands. And one thing we know about him is that he was not Jewish, uh, at least by birth, because Chusa is a Nabataean name. And the Nabataeans were located somewhere near where Jordan is today. And the Nabataeans were important to people like Herod because they were the country right next door. And because of the fact that Herod himself, who was like a king in Galilee, had married the daughter of the Nabataean king and later divorced her, which is part of what got him in trouble with John the Baptist. But Chusa was probably part of her entourage at the beginning when she came to live with Herod and would have converted to Judaism because Herod usually insisted that the people who worked for him convert for political reasons, which would have been easier for Chusa because Nabataeans circumcised their children as well. And we see here that after coming to be with Herod and converted, converting Chusa, uh, somehow worked himself up to a position of real importance. Luke says he was Herod's household manager, which kind of sounds like something small to us, but you've got to remember Herod was like a king, and so the person who managed his estate, basically, was the financial minister of the kingdom. And so he's like a high-ranking official in Herod's court. And he and Joanna lived in a city called Tiberias that uh, was where Herod had his headquarters, which was a city in the region of Galilee where Jesus was from, which Herod himself had built and was a very Roman city, very not Jewish in other words. You can tell that by the name. It's named after a Roman emperor. And it was built on a cemetery, which Jewish people would have hated, especially because Herod taxed them heavily in order to build that city, and so most Jewish people didn't want to visit Tiberias. And actually, we don't ever read of Jesus himself going there. But because Joanna was part of the Herodian upper class, she probably had more freedom than most Jewish women. There was a class system, class system at least in Roman culture, where upper class women were treated differently than others were. And so at some point, she must have heard of Jesus. John the Baptist was making some noise. Herod was interested in Jesus. And Tiberius is only about 10 miles away from Capernaum, where Jesus was doing all these miracles, and even less by boat, because it was right by a lake. And so it seems like she must have known about Jesus and probably got more interested in Jesus at some point when she had gotten sick. Because if you look at verse 2, Luke describes these women as those who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. And that includes Mary and Joanna. And so obviously, she decided to go find Jesus to see if he could help her. And you know, maybe she's even part of that crowd back in chapter 6. You remember chapter 6, verse 18, where Luke says, after choosing the apostles, Jesus came down, stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all over the country, basically, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And she was healed. And whether she was there on that particular day or not, she definitely heard Jesus and his message because she takes a big risk. I mean, her encounter with Jesus becomes an experience that changes her whole life because she clearly takes a step to become a disciple of Jesus, a follower, which not everyone who was healed did and is why Luke mentions her. She was with Jesus. And I don't know all the details of what it meant to be a woman follower of Jesus in that day, but God becoming man and walking around on earth for 33 years is something that had never happened like that before. And so I imagine there are some things that would be different in terms of your responsibilities than how things normally worked. And most of the time, of course, Jesus was there in Galilee near where she was from. And while I don't know exactly how she worked it out with her husband, Chusa, following Jesus the way she did, I'm sure it must have been a pretty interesting conversation, and I imagine Chusa must have been a little shocked at first when she wanted to participate in Jesus' ministry, however that worked out. Like, uh, Joanna, I'm, I'm glad you're healed. That, that's, that's great. It's good. But, you know, I was there when they chopped off John's head, and now you're saying you want to do what? Uh, this was clearly dangerous, and she wasn't going to be popular because her husband worked for Herod, and Herod worked for Rome, and she was rich, and people were upset. 
poor people that were getting excited about Jesus were upset about rich people like her, but Jesus was more valuable to her than what people thought, which is step number one for anyone who's going to follow Jesus. Jesus has to be more important to you than the approval of others. And while we don't know all the specifics of how a wife following Jesus like this would have worked out, she probably went back and forth, but it's obvious she saw Jesus for who he was, and she did really truly follow Jesus, not only for a little while, but all the way through his resurrection. Because if you look at Luke chapter 24, verses 5 through 10, and some people say this is like a bookend toward the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Luke 8, and then toward the end, Luke 24, and the women are there at both. That's why they call it a bookend. And it seems like a lot of the time in between as well, because Luke says that an angel appears to the women as they come to the tomb. And listen to what this angel says. He says, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you. Now, keep that in your mind. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And you hear the word remember. Remember what he told you. Who? Told who? The women. That's who the angel's talking to. And then Luke says in verse 8, they remembered his words. And yet, you know, when does Luke say Jesus told them that? If we look at Luke, when Jesus talked about the crucifixion and who Jesus talked about it to, it's back in Luke 9, Luke 9, verse 18. He says, now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And Peter confesses him as the Messiah, and then Jesus tells them about his coming death. And Luke says, this is something Jesus told his disciples. And yet here, these women remembered his words. And so it seems like we're supposed to assume that these women were with Jesus since Galilee. And Mark actually tells us they were. And again, what women are we talking about? Who exactly? Luke 24, 10. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women who were with them who told these things to the apostles. And so it seems like Luke wants us to know that they were real participants with Jesus in his ministry, the 12 and these women. I mean, I guess to say it another way, uh, to give the picture, if you were living back in first century Palestine and you wanted to have Jesus over for a meal, who do you think would show up? Because it wouldn't just be Jesus if you invited him over. It would be Jesus and his disciples, obviously. And yet, as you think about his disciples, I'm not sure what image you see, but you really would have to set a lot of places at the dinner table if you had Jesus over, because it would likely be Jesus, the 12, and then also these women, like Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Luke goes on to say Susanna, and also many others who provided for them out of their means. That's who were participants in Jesus's ministry, which if you look at the culture of the day, was really pretty shocking, especially if you look at what these women were doing. These women were followers of Jesus. Luke tells us that Jesus is actually traveling through cities and villages with a band of men and sometimes women who I think we're supposed to assume were known to be his students. In other words, these women were among his disciples. And not just these women. If you look over at Luke chapter 10, and we'll get to this in a couple months, but Jesus goes over to visit with his friends, Mary and Martha. And Martha, Luke tells us, welcomed Jesus into her house, verse 39. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. And that phrase, sit at Jesus' feet, is very specific kind of language, actually. To sit at the feet of someone is to basically be a disciple of that rabbi. And so maybe you remember how Paul, they talked about Paul as sitting at the feet of Gamaliel. He was a disciple of Gamaliel, which means Mary here is being discipled by Jesus. But Luke tells us that Martha was distracted with much serving, which is important too, because she was distracted from what? By much serving. From sitting at the feet of Jesus, from being discipled by Jesus. And yet Martha, if you asked her, didn't know she was being distracted. Martha would have felt like she was in the right, actually. But the point of this whole story is that she is not. She is the one who's wrong. And what is she wrong about, Martha? We know she's wrong about her priorities. They're out of whack. 
for sure, but I think there might be something a little more because she's not asking Jesus about her brother, Lazarus, if you understand what I'm saying. In other words, she's not getting upset because she's not being helped with the cooking. And we know that because she's not upset that Lazarus is sitting at Jesus' feet. I assume he must have been. It was his home too. She's upset about her sister Mary because I think in Martha's mind, that was not Mary's place sitting there like a regular disciple. And so she gets the courage to go to Jesus and say, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. In other words, uh, Jesus, do you not see what I'm seeing? Doesn't this bother you? And Jesus looks at Martha and says the opposite. He tells Martha, you actually are the one who is worried and bothered by many things when only one thing is necessary. And Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken from her. And so Luke wants us to know that Jesus is not just tolerating this. He wants Mary as one of his disciples. And I think Martha as well. And you, Jesus wants women to sit at his feet and learn and go deep in their relationship with God. And one way we know that is because Jesus had women disciples. If your daughter ever asks you, why didn't Jesus have women disciples? You need to say, Jesus did. Like these women in Luke 8 and Mary. And there are other passages in the Gospels that illustrate the same thing. Like, for example, there's a surprising scene in Matthew 12 when someone comes and tells Jesus that his mother and brothers are outside, and Jesus responds by saying, here are my mother and my brothers. As uh, Matthew says, he stretches out his hand to his disciples. And the key phrase there is, stretches out his hand to his disciples. He says, here are my mother and my brothers. And in case we don't get the point, he says, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And it's that addition of the word sister that shows Jesus assumes women were there among his disciples. Because if you were looking at a crowd of men and you waved your arm in most cultures, you wouldn't say, here are my mother and my brother and my sisters. Because normally the men would be like, sister, what are you talking about? I am no one's sister. And so there had to be women there, is what I'm saying. Maybe some of these women, Luke's pointing out in Luke chapter 8. Women were real, legitimate disciples of Jesus, and they participated in his ministry. Like back here in Luke 8, what did they do? Luke says, Mary, Joanna, Susanna, and many others provided for them out of their means. And he's talking about what? Financial support. Financial support. As, as one man explains, Luke is not telling his readers here that the women cooked the meals, washed the dishes, and mended the clothes. Though maybe they did. I don't know. But here Luke is saying these women were the primary ones taking care of the financial needs, which is unusual. I know. But if you think about disciples like Peter, they had families back home as they were following Jesus. And so it must have been complicated for them, leaving their jobs and trying to provide for their families where the women following Jesus would have either been single or women like Joanna who were coming from a really wealthy family. And so the apostles who followed Jesus left their homes behind and their means of surviving, really, and providing for their family. And the women contributed out of their financial means, which is a, a beautiful statement, first, about the humility of Jesus because he's the son of God and he could have made money for himself out of dirt, and so he definitely didn't need support, and yet he voluntarily chose to rely on the sacrificial giving of others, specifically some women. Not for himself, I don't think, but he was allowing them the opportunity to participate in his mission. And it's also a real testimony to these women as well, because again, even if they were all wealthy, and I'm not sure that they all were, it's more likely that it was pretty much just Joanna who had some means, but even if they were, as women, it wasn't like they had easy access to lots of money. Most money would have been their husbands, like absolutely. So Joanna, for example, there's only a couple specific, very specific ways that she could have had disposable income to give. The most likely one being that her father had given her a gift when she got married, and that money would have been hers. They had a way of, of doing that. But it would have involved a sacrifice to give away money as a woman, obviously, as you didn't have many other options of getting it back. And it wasn't just money either. That's what Luke is highlighting because 
that's what Luke is highlighting, money. But Mark talks about a similar group of women in Mark 15, 41, and says that there were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem and followed Jesus and ministered to him. And the word there is ministered, deaconed, literally. They deaconed Jesus. They served him. And so look, listen, I don't want you to misunderstand because men are not women and women are not men. Praise God. And that's a wonderful thing. And God has a, a special way for women to serve him. And there are some ways that plan is similar to men. And yet there are also some ways, as we read our Bible, that plan is, is not the same. And I'm sure it would be good for us to talk about that and those differences at some point. But right now we're emphasizing those differences don't mean that we believe women are less in value to God than men or that men have the right to act as if they were superior to women, or that women can't be great heroes of the faith, or that women can't learn from Jesus, or that men can't learn from women. And we need to always make sure that as we think about men and women, that we're not just looking to our culture, but we're looking to Jesus and allowing him to strip us of cultural ways of thinking that don't match up with what the scripture teaches. Because if you or me or us, we ever put women to the side or act as if men were spiritually superior to women or that women don't have an important role to play here in the life and ministry of the church, we are going to be really ineffective as a church and very unlike Jesus. And it's not just here in Luke chapter eight where Luke describes these participants in Jesus's ministry as disciples playing a role that tells us that. It's the whole book. For example, if you think back to Luke chapter one, because right off, Luke assumes we all have something to learn from women. Take the stories about the birth of Jesus and John as an example. In Luke one, verse four, Luke says that the reason he's writing this book is that you might be certain, that you might believe. And then the very first story he tells, you remember this? is about this angel who's announcing the birth of John the Baptist to uh, his father. And, and how does his father, this holy man, Zachariah, respond? He doesn't believe. And so in a sense, he's a bad example of how to respond. And you know who this bad example is contrasted with? Luke contrasts this man, Zachariah, with a young teenage girl who everyone would have overlooked, who responds to an announcement made by an angel that's even more difficult to believe with faith. And in case you wonder if that's the point, Zechariah's wife confirms it in verse 45 of chapter 1. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord, which means if anyone thinks they can't learn from a woman, they're in trouble because Luke's holding up a woman to all of us as an example of what it looks like to have biblical faith. And unfortunately, we know that there have been a lot of men throughout history who haven't taken what women had to say seriously simply because they were women. But at the beginning of Luke, we see God's different. In fact, later on in chapter 2, we find a story about Anna, who was a prophetess. And the reason Luke brings her up is as a witness of the redemptive ministry of Jesus. She got it when so many people didn't, which is incredible that he would bring her up as a witness since women weren't even allowed to testify in court at that time, but God chooses her out of the many others he could have selected to stand up and testify that Jesus is the Christ, and I think one reason he does is to make a point that in spite of anything the world might have to say, women really have a role to play. They are to be treated with respect. And as we look at the way women are treated in the Gospel of Luke, we see that who they are, what they think, and what they have to say matters. And that certainly is the way Jesus treated women. For example, he spoke directly to them. And we saw that already as he approached the widow who lost her son. You remember maybe that he addressed her specifically. And back then, that was actually a little surprising, that he would talk to a woman directly. I would do a church membership interviews in the past in another country, where uh, the husband and wife would be there, and they would sometimes be surprised that I would talk to the woman directly with the husband there like that. And that was certainly true in, in Jesus' day as well. It, remember when uh, Jesus met the Samaritan woman at the well? The disciples see that, and John says they marveled that he was talking with the woman. And he wasn't just talking with her, he was teaching her gospel truth. And the reason Jesus talked directly to women is because he expected women to have their own individual relationship with him. 
it was funny in Africa because uh, sometimes people would think if a husband were a Christian, the wife had to be a Christian. And uh, sometimes you'd even talk to young men who were about to get married and they were bringing uh, somebody from their home and you can understand that. But I would say to them, well, is, is she a believer? You know, can you tell me a little bit about her testimony? And, and they were like, she will be. She will be. She's married. I'm a Christian. She's marrying me. But obviously it doesn't work that way. Jesus doesn't merely see women as an extension of the man. They are individuals, and as individuals, they're going to be judged by God on their own. So you remember, for example, how Lot escaped Sodom, but his wife didn't. And so if you somehow think that the Bible teaches because you're a man, you can't learn from a woman in any way, or you don't have to listen to women, or women don't have a real genuine accountability before God themselves, you're clearly not understanding what the Bible teaches. Because as we look at Jesus in Luke and the way Luke summarizes the participants in his ministry, who they were and what they did, we see that women were real legitimate disciples and that we can learn from the example of godly women and that women who should be people who know God and who know his word. They should be theologians. Jesus expected that. He taught women. And you know what? As we look at the people following Jesus in the gospel of Luke, it's actually the women who turned out to be some of the greatest heroes. It was the women who were there as Jesus was dying on the cross. And it was the women who went to the tomb that day, uh, the day he died, to see how his body was laid. And it was the women who took the spices and ointments they had prepared back to the tomb on the first day of the week, only to discover that Jesus had risen from the dead. And it was the women the angel first entrusted this great message of Jesus' res resurrection to. They were the very first to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. And you know, their faith stands out because even when they take this message back to the apostles, Luke says, these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them, but the women did. And these women actually are part of a long line of women in the Bible who show up in big ways at times when God is accomplishing salvation. So the first time God acts to save his people in Exodus, we know that God used a man named Moses as part of that deliverance. But do you know Exodus 1 and 2? Who are the ones delivering the deliverer? It's women, the midwives, Moses' mother, Pharaoh's daughter. A little girl named Miriam is standing there at the water telling Pharaoh's daughter what to do. And after God saves Israel through the Red Sea, Moses writes a song, but then we read about his sister Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron and the women, singing and celebrating what God had done. And later in the Bible, the psalmist reflects on that. In Psalm 68, 11, as he's talking about the Exodus, he says, the Lord gives the word the women who announce the news are a great host. And I don't think he's talking about offices in the church there or preaching or anything like that, but I do think he's talking about God using women to proclaim the good news of what he's accomplished, kind of like he did with these women. Back at Jesus' resurrection, God chose to reveal Jesus to them first, and they became the first witnesses to the resurrection, which again is a little surprising in the ancient world and one of those things that points to the truthfulness of the resurrection accounts because if someone were making this story up in the ancient world, they never would have had women be the first to hear that Jesus had risen from the dead because the ancient world didn't take women seriously. But God does. And if as a church we're going to really think and live as Christians, we need to take women seriously as well because Jesus did. In the middle of a Jewish, Greek, and Roman world that viewed women as basically property, in Luke 8 and throughout the Gospels, we show that Jesus showed love and respect for women. They even, in some way, became his disciples and ministered to him. And while that doesn't stop women from being women and men from being men, and doesn't mean that men and women always have the same role to play in the family and the church. It definitely doesn't mean that, but it definitely does mean that women have an important role to play in our families and in our church. And as we seek to uphold what the Bible teaches about men and women, we need to make clear that one thing it teaches is that women, you matter to God. And it's important you work hard at coming to know God better. I have six daughters. I want them, expect them, pray for them, that they will be theologians, that they will know God. God wants every one of you to take your relationship with him seriously and to think correctly about him, to study and read your Bible, to understand what it teaches, to have the ability to identify truth and error. As someone has said, if we look at Jesus in the Gospels, we see him having some of his most profound theological conversations with women. 
And not only does God want you to know him, he wants you to serve him. It's important. As a woman, you find opportunities here to use your gifts to serve God. It's, um, I, I read somewhere that, I don't know if this is true, but I read it, that 75% of the world's population is either a woman or under the age of 15. And so I know there are some women who say, well, if God doesn't want me to preach on Sundays, what can I do? There are about a million different things you can do for the cause of Christ. Like 75% of the world's population is either a woman or under the age of 15. That's kind of a lot of people. And greatness, according to Jesus, we know is not about power and privilege and being in front and everyone seen, but about service and sacrifice. And as John Piper writes, for men and women who have a heart to minister, to save souls and heal broken lives and resist evil and meet needs, there are fields of opportunity that are simply endless. God intends for the entire church to be mobilized in ministry, male and female. There's much to do outside the church, of course, with half of the world's population outside the reach of indigenous evangelism, with countless other lost people in those societies that have heard the gospel, with, that have not heard the gospel, with the stresses and miseries of sickness, malnutrition, homelessness, illiteracy, ignorance, aging, addiction, crime, incarceration, loneliness. No man or woman who feels a passion from God to make his grace known in word and deed need ever live without a fulfilling ministry for the glory of Christ and the good of this fallen world. And there are things many things to be done within the church as well for married women and single women. And speaking directly to single women, if you're a single woman, you have an incredible opportunity to, to serve Jesus. We saw this on the mission field. God gave us several single women who came over as missionaries and their sacrifice in discipleship and, and, and ministry in the church is part of what helped plant that church really and enable it to thrive, even though they didn't get a lot of credit or notice but they made a huge impact. And women can make a huge impact here like they did in Jesus's ministry as well because real gospel work, hear this, the most important gospel work, the most powerful gospel work is often done by the least visible people. Like many women serving Jesus throughout history and around the world today. Let's pray. Father, uh, we are just working our way through the Gospel of Luke, <laughs> and uh, these little passages sometimes surprise us with all they have to say. We thank you, Jesus, just for, uh, thank you, Father, for sending Jesus into the world, and Jesus, the way that you have changed the world. And uh, we thank you that we don't just hope that uh, these things are true, that we should treat women with respect and women can learn. We don't just make this up. We, uh, and, and wish that's the way the world worked, we look to you as our great example and we learn this is how the world works. This is how you designed it to work. And so we want to be a church that submits to you in all ways. You are our owner. We don't make things up. We belong to you. And so we want to say what you say about men and women. When it comes to the roles the Bible teaches, we know they're there for a reason and we want to hold to them strongly because it's your word, not just because it's our culture, but because it's your word. And when it comes to all the great, amazing things that uh, opportunities that you've given women to serve and glorify Christ, we want to be loud about that as well. Help us. Help us. We are, we're, we're like young children so often, so easily confused, and we don't want to get, we don't want to get your word wrong. Um, and so we just ask for your help. Glorify your son, and we pray this in his name. Amen.